Hey everybody, this is Aaron Fletcher-Smith of uh, the Dan and Aaron like Rama. So Dan and I ended up spending so much time on Booker T and the MGs because we both love that era and all of those artists that came out of that era. We love it so much that we ended up going for virtually three hours. Um, so we broke this episode up into a two-parter. So around 1970 to 1971, as I'm going through the timeline, um, you'll hear it uh, fade out. Um, that's not the end of the episode. It's just the end of part one. Uh, so if you can tune in again for part two, it'd be great. Thanks. Hey, my name's Dan Grubb, and over there is Aaron Fletcher-Smith. And this is the Dan and Aaron Lycorama. Music! Okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> Hooray! Otherwise, I'd be sitting here humming all of the rest of Hip Hugger. So, yeah. <laughs> Such a oh, man, song. it's a classic. And speaking of Hip Hugger, I believe that has something to do with today's topic. Oh, it has just a little bit to do with our topic today. <laughs> oh? Yes, for today, we are going to talk about... Uh, if not my favorite band in the world, definitely up there uh, in the number two, number one slot. I'm not sure. We're going to talk about Booker T and the MGs. So, in a nutshell, Booker T and the MGs is the um, band that you always knew by the sound of their songs in TV shows and movies and in commercials, but you never knew what their name was until now. Um, everyone and their brother has heard Green Onions. Um, yep. To a lesser extent. Yeah. Everyone's heard Green Onions. Um, the Green Onions is, is is the song. It's the reason Booker T and the MGs is on the map. Um, there are um, several lesser known songs that um, made their way up the Billboard charts, uh, but uh, we'll get into uh, the 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 just ridiculous wildfire success of Green Onions in a second here, but. Um, yeah, Booker T and the MGs is, um, they have been part of your music periphery for all of your life. You, the general you being the audience listening, um, but you just didn't know who they were until now. We're going to talk about, um, every single, well, not every single, but we're going to talk loosely about many of the, um, different, uh, uh, singers that they backed up. Um, yeah, because I would say even if, of. even if you know them, it's like the Funk Brothers where, oh, they were on that. Right. Oh, they were on that. Right. Oh, they were on that. The They're biggest, the, the soundtrack of the best music. The biggest problem that I ran into as I was doing the research on this um, uh, episode of the show is that 
there are so many people and so many jumping off points as to who they uh, collaborated with and who they play music with that um, at a certain point I was like, I, I can't write all of this down and I know I'm not going to yeah. capture all of the awesome people that they've jammed with in their lives. Because, so, they started in 1962 and those of the Booker T and the MGs group that are still alive still jam today. So we're talking yeah. about um, 60 years worth of making music, collabing with other people, and uh, just generally making sweet pudding. Um, and so, yeah. So I'm going to get into it. Let's do it. After a good sip of coffee there. Okay. Um, yeah, because these, these folks are like... Well, I'll save that for the end. I was going to say, there. well, I already opened my fat mouth, but in the 60s and 70s, they were the equivalent of the 80s and 90s and 2000s, like Jimmy, Jimmy Vivino, where, hmm, I need a person, I need, I need a, a seven-piece band right. yeah. uh, next week. I'll call Jimmy Vivino because he knows everybody, wrote songs for everybody, recorded everybody. I'll see what he knows. Right. <laughs> Who's right. in town for my big show? That was a, a an anecdote. Uh, Max Weinberg just did an interview on the uh, one of the Conan podcasts. Was talking about how he got the gig, and he literally called up Jimmy Vivino and was like, "Hey, I need a band for an audition in two days. Can you help me out?" And they got the band together. <laughs> okay, thank you for saying Max Weinberg because I was trying to backtrack in my head Savino, and then I remembered Savino is the trumpet oh, player yeah, yeah. who's always wearing the 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 hat in the Max Weinberg Seven during uh, Conan's show. Yeah, 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 all right. Yeah, Jimmy Vivino was the guitar player and band leader, and after Max Weinberg oh, left, guitar. he became the band leader. Okay, for some reason I had him pegged as a trumpet Conan, player. Yeah, Here's yeah, guitar. But yeah, right. and yeah, 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 he was the yeah he was a guitarist. Yeah. Oh, he, I know who I think I'm. Is, I'm getting him I think his brother with, was the bass player. Yeah, I'm getting him confused with Paul Savini, who was trumpet for Blues Brothers Band, who we'll talk about later on down. Anyway, yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah, totally different guy. Yep. Jimmy Vivino came later, okay. came like 20 years later, right. guitarist, played with everybody, right. but similar music, blues, soul, jazz. Yeah, and those dudes, oh my God, every time that they would um, do any of the uh, connecting music on Conan, it was always stellar. But, oh, yeah fantastic yeah yeah vivino is he's a monster he's in the bed you know in a in a good way he's right. he, yeah he's he's sick he's he's phenomenal all right i'm gonna take you but we're all... not talking about them no. we're talking about booker t and the mgs yeah all right so let's let's do the uh let's do the uh the the uh the magic time warp sound effects here you know <laughs> We're gonna go back to 1962, uh, even further back to 1957. Um, so, no one was alive then. Right. This is back when the Constitution was spelled with two giant F's in the middle, and everybody was riding <laughs> around on uh, dinosaurs. And um, when you uh, got off of shift, you uh, pulled on the uh, tail feathers of a bird that turned to the narrator and went, "Eh, it's a living." Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 1957. Um, so, um, late, uh, 
late 50s leading into 1957, you got um, Steve Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn, who basically kept that nickname for the rest of his life. So you'll hear him <laughs> referred to as Donald Duck. You'll hear him referred to as Duck Dunn. You'll hear him referred to as Donald Duck Dunn throughout all of this episode. Uh, the name was basically interchangeable, and the dude did not seem to care. Um, yeah. He so yeah, pretty laid back dude. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the cool thing. Cropper and Dunn were both incredibly laid back. That was the biggest thing I picked up from watching uh, the the interview with Cropper. Um, so the two of them would jam together throughout high school, and that eventually resulted in them being part of an all white uh, R&B high school band uh, called the Royal Spades. Um, it around. Um, the time that the two of them graduated from high school, uh, Cropper got a job um, working for a record shop. This record shop was the Stax Record Shop, as owned by Jim Stewart and Steve Axton. Um, I may have the... I think it's Steve Axton. Uh, but anyway, Axton and Stewart... Um, they, they got together and uh, they said, uh, 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 the story as Cropper tells it is uh, apparently they were going to, um, they were interested in purchasing a recording studio because they wanted to get into recording music. They were in Memphis and um, uh, uh, Axton's wife says, uh, well, you know, I'll tell you what, it'd be awesome if uh, we included a record shop in this whole thing because I don't have the money to put up. But if you add a record shop to the front half of the recording studio, I'll just mortgage the house. Um, and they did. And uh, that's how they got the money to buy essentially a chunk of property that included enough space to have a commercial property in the front and, you know, kind of a, a brick walled off building in the back. So you got the record, the record studio in the front and the uh, uh, or I'm sorry, the record shop in the front and then the recording studio in the back and Stuart Naxton. Um, originally wanted to call it Satellite Records. Um, they got uh, called off, got told, uh, can't do that. Uh, somebody else already owned Satellite Records, so they called it Stax, yeah. Stuart and Axton. Um, so Cropper's working at Stax uh, out of high school. He's in uh, his, uh, he is 20, as a matter of fact, is, is when they, uh, uh, they date this. Um, and um, I'm not sure what the story is with Dunn, but I, a lot of the story is told from Steve Cropper's perspective, who has been kind of the most vocal and the most documented. He's done the most interviews. Um, he talks about he was working there, and um, uh, this this kid kept coming in and um, buying records. He kept saying, God, I really love, I love this sound, and I love this soul, and this record. And he would show the records to Cropper, and Cropper would kind of, oh, that's very nice. Sure, okay, just buy your stuff and leave. <laughs> um, and then at a certain point, he he just pestered Cropper and uh, the, the, um, the shop owners, Stuart and Axton, enough. He was able to get Cropper to listen to him uh, audition. And um, the way Cropper talks about it, Cropper uh, basically says, uh, I was convinced. I was just, holy crap, uh, we needed this guy. Uh, because one of the yeah. things that one of the things that Cropper, Stewart, and Axton were doing at the time was they were putting together the in-house band to do back, background instrumentals 
for any um, uh, uh, lead singer that would come to them with enough money to say, hey, can I, you know, can I book a day uh, in your recording studio to uh, record some vocals and show the world my thing? And so this house band eventually added, um, this, is, this is within the course of like a few years. So this is just prior to 62, 63. They added Al Jackson Jr., who is the drummer. Um, yeah. Uh, Louis Steinberg uh, stepped in as the bassist for a period of time. Uh, this is Duck Dunn is off the map for the time being. Um, and so the original lineup is Booker T. Jones on the organ, Steve Cropper on the guitar, Al Jackson Jr. on drums, and Louis uh, Steinberg on bass um and uh they were the house band of Stax records um people would come in and uh do do some vocals and um they would back them up uh notable uh famous uh lead vocalists uh that came out of that era um of 62 63 were wilson pickett otis redding um there's a there's a bunch more um Sam and Dave. Sam and Dave. Yeah, you want to do a, oh you want to do a minute or two God. on Sam and Dave? Sam and Dave are the greatest if, if to me they're just the absolute greatest act of that era. I mean everyone rightfully loves Aretha Franklin, loves Little Richard, loves Ray Charles, loves Otis Redding, you know, but Sam and Dave just had so much power. And two of the songs that that these guys did with them are the two best ones, Soul Man and Hold On I'm Coming. Yeah, yeah. Just when Hold On I'm Coming starts up, you're just like, let's go. I'm yeah. ready to party. I'm ready to dance. I'm happy. I'm smiling. I'm doing cartwheels like John Belushi. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's do it. Yeah. Oh, they're so good. They're so dang good. I had to pull up the wiki. I, I, as soon as I pulled up the wiki, I suddenly remembered that they were the Sultans of Sweat, which I think is just such a fantastic nickname. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did uh, In the Midnight Hour. Yeah. Uh, by uh, Wilson Pickett. Oh my God! Oh, wait, in midnight hour. Yeah. They did. They did. Sitting on the dock of the bay. Otis Redding. Come yeah. on. Yeah, that was another. That was another one that was. Uh, That's a, He also recorded with the Stacks House Band. Just you know, in the months, year maybe prior to them cementing themselves as Booker T and the MGs. Um, oh, I'm I am jumping so far ahead. I'm oh. sorry. I'm like <laughs> I'm like six, seven years ahead. Of oh, you. I'm right. sorry, man. No, I'm just sitting no here. No. I'm just sitting here being excited. Right. No, it's no problem. Um, actually, let me see here. I'm trying to. I'm digging through. There was a a note here. Um. Yeah, here it is. Um. So one of the things that was also wild was that um, these guys were all cross-pollinating with each other because it was it was the '60s. It was it was this burgeoning soul scene in in Memphis and in the American South. So they could kind of all this is before major record labels owned these guys in any sort of uh, 
you know sense of the word um and well, so they and, could and also it was so many you know all these records you know if you look at the names it's otis redding wilson pickett right. sam and dave it's not wilson pickett and the blah 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 right. it's right. not you know otis redding and the blah blah blahs right. it's just the singer yeah but the thing that i and thought so it's was... the same way today you 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 know it's not uh, you know it's not ariana grande and the blah blah, blah. it's just right. ariana grande and the session people yeah exactly right doing the doing the music yeah it's not or the taylor producer. swift and the and the you know band from i don't know the charlottesville band or something like that yeah yeah i guess yeah um, and so yeah it's that and and uh who was it i think it was uh, uh that'll come up later i don't want to i don't right. want to steal your thunder all right but uh but yeah but i mean when it's just hey i'm a singer okay well come on in and we'll record you with these geniuses right <laughs> right well we already have a perfect band to back you up so all you have to do is yeah. just come in and sing well you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah. this is before post-production and tweaking, you know, like the pitch and the tone or anything. That was another thing that Cropper kept joking about. That was like my favorite thing is, so Cropper's out of the South, right? So um, part of the interview, they're talking to him. They're like, you know, so uh, what did you guys do to make sure that, you know, production value stayed up, uh, you know, and to make sure that you guys played in tune? And Cropper goes, no, man, you kidding? We didn't play in tune. We just listened to each other, made sure that, you know, we put our ears next to the instruments once everything was good. We started playing. No, man. You're talking about playing in tune? Hell, if I went back and listened to half of those recordings right now, I bet you I could tell you who was flat and who was sharp. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, and that's what, what makes those records so good. Yeah. Is there's, there are perfect clinical you know architectural structurally sound records and then there are records that just blow your ass off yeah and make you want to get up and move yeah and some people like column a yeah i like column b <laughs> yeah oh i love column b actually so part I'll, of the reason that... if you have both great you yeah. win yeah. but if it if it's one or the other yeah i'll i'll take i'll take uh I'll take soul over over uh, arithmetic. Well, there's such a power. I mean, this is something, I, this goes back um, decades, you and I talking about this together, right? Where oh, yeah. there's, there's this, um, there's this hybrid of the raw power of the enthusiasm about playing the music combined with watching a group of folks fall organically into hitting the downbeat all at the same time and not because they're watching a metronome or making sure that you know they follow um a pulsing led that's showing them the tempo but because they are all living in that same moment of that same song at the same time it is four yeah. shared heartbeats beating to the same song at the same time that that song is being played and there's a raw power yeah. to that that you don't find outside of uh good organic rock and roll soul um blues um 
you know, the stuff that came out of this era, you know. Um, I mean, I feel like it's yeah. definitely captured in, you know, punk, you know, the Ramones. Um, but it's, 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 you know, it stands in contrast to, you know, I don't want to pin any artist to the wall, so I'm not really going to. But the, the. Yeah, you could say it generically, you know. Yeah. Um, let, let us fill in our own blanks of who's awful. Boo. Right. When you when you hit when you hit like fourteen people in the studio plus a giant LED to indicate tempo, uh, you know, hovering above you, and then you have another twelve people behind the uh, uh, big console, you know, in the back of the studio, making sure that those twenty people are on the right pitch and that they can even slider bar the tempo and stuff like that. There's there the level of humanity that comes through in raw recordings, yeah. especially like the ones that uh, from the early days of Booker T and the MG. Like for example, I know that there's there's a point where either the whole band collectively goes flat, or their recording equipment like screwed the pooch, like somebody stepped on a mic cable or something like that in the middle of. Um, it's they stepped on the mic cable the, and, yeah. they, and it squashed all the notes down. A bit. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, that's right. Happened. That's <laughs> how. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's what happens. It's a very complex. <laughs> yeah, I, I could sit here and do signal theory to legitimize what I just said, but I'm just gonna go with what you said. Um, like, no, that's how that's how cables work. Yes. Um, but, hey, I've been in a studio. All right, so you know, you know, oh, yeah, you know, you know. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's exactly that. Records. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's it's like somebody steps on uh, something, and then you know everybody's listening to the recording later, and they're like, "The hell was that?" And there's that yeah, one. When person they talk about the... compression, that's what that is. You yeah. Squeeze the cable a little bit, and <laughs> if you pinch it really hard, then it stops, and then you let go, and it all comes. Yeah. It comes out really fast. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's how, that's how uh, um, you know, a after the 1940s and 50s, uh, trumpet players, they just, they didn't have to mute themselves anymore. They just recorded the trumpet track solo, and then you just yeah. had somebody bending the cable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's so stupid. I'm so sorry. Uh, it's weird. It, I apologize it, it, for that it, really bad joke. <laughs> and, you know, they never meant it to, yeah. but coincidentally, they bent it into the shape of a trumpet. Oh, oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, if you bend the, the cable... <laughs> That's also, that's all. That's also how those rappers rap so fast. They're just going at regular speed, and then they kink up the chord a bunch, and, and then they let it come out, and it comes out in a bunch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that explains Busta Rhymes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't talk that fast. No one can rap that fast. Come on. It's humanely impossible. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would list some modern stuff, but the most modern thing I've ever heard of is I think uh, 1926 <laughs> is, is kind of where I'm floating these days. <laughs> yeah. I listen to a lot of ragtime lately. Yeah. And, uh, Dixieland. I wish Dixieland had a, a better name, but yeah, if, you if, know, that's what it's called. If you pinch the mic cable when it's playing Anything Goes, it automatically becomes rap music. Um it's yeah it's weird yeah uh and and somehow a backbeat gets in there anyway um so 1962 1963 um this is prior to the golden date that we're getting to 1963 um 
the uh, they're they're the house they're the house band. They're not Booker T and the MGs yet, um, uh, by name, but they've definitely become that four-person group at this point. They're backing up all those famous artists. Dan and I were gobbing about uh, Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Albert King, Johnny Taylor, Eddie Floyd, the Staple Singers, uh, Delaney and Bonnie. Um, as well as several different records by artists uh, that I've mentioned and others. Walking the Dog, Hold On, I'm Coming, Soul Man, Who's Making Love, I've Been Loving You Too Long, Try A Little Tenderness, um, all of which Ugh. has Booker T and the MGs backing it up. Yeah. So, but the fun part is that at a certain point um, in 1963, um, fortuitously they're all set up and this is the steve cropper story this is from the the youtube video that i watched where, where he's doing an interview at the uh, rock and roll hall of fame um oh sorry it's 62 it's 62 not 63 um they they uh <clears throat> they got everything set up to record on a sunday they were gonna have this one guy come in um and um they they were gonna record one of these singers um, because the big, the big thing is, is kind of like a tangential side note here was Cropper talks a lot about, you know, making music is good, but the money is in the business. And so you got to keep the business going all the while. The business has to be the kind of this invisible constant under it. So Cropper talked about the fact that he was always working with Stuart and Axton to move singers in and move them back out. Right. Come on in. Yep, yeah. let's record you. Okay, thank you very much. Get the hell out the door. Here's your <laughs> here's your wax press. If you want to go find somebody to print it on mass and vinyl, that's great. But now you've got a wax press, uh, uh, you know, a raw recording of your record. Congratulations. Do whatever you want with it. You've used a recording studio. Now get the hell out of Dodge. Um, and, and, now obviously and still that, today, yeah. still today, you know, uh, when we think of the music industry we think of big acts you know touring acts and big studio acts but uh the um you know even local you know in your city bands right the musicians who don't have to have a day job versus the ones who do is right. often it's not a term of dedication or talent or or any of that it's just it's a lot of business sense and there's yeah. people who are like yeah i have a a gig on sunday afternoon that i'm not a big fan of but that lets me do these gigs right. monday and wednesday night right that i love right i'm and, playing drums and they have in the, the connections city. with everybody else in town right that oh it's it's that you know that business school MBA yeah. lesson, you know, handshaking and yeah. Yeah. elevator pitches and yeah. getting foots in doors and all that. Right. Uh, where, you know, if you're a, a brilliant musician such as myself, just no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it's like I, the only way that I was ever getting a lot of shows was when we had them at my house. Yep. Because, oh, yeah. Or if the main, <laughs> or the if the main, house. you yeah. know, in college, my my me and my roommates had bands play at our house every weekend. If if one couldn't make it, we would open for them. Flop house represent <laughs> the opening. 
if the opening band wouldn't come, then our band Johnny No Friends would play. God, that was so much fun. Um, that was so much fun. But uh, and or if if one of the other bands, if the sort of lead person did all the business side of it. Yeah. And, but yeah, and, you gotta you gotta have someone doing that, or else you're just gonna you know be making very wonderful, creative, fantastic stuff that no one right. will ever know about. And I remember, you know, you and I have had friends uh, in the music industry and, you know, the daily conversations with them are, are the, uh, those that are just regular run of the mill folks that just happen to also be career musicians. You talk with them and they're like, oh, yeah, um, I'm going to drive up to Ohio tomorrow. And then after that, I'm driving to Chicago uh, the next day. And then I'm driving back down to Baltimore and that should put me back in D.C. on Friday. And that should give yeah. me enough money to cover groceries on Saturday. And it's like, yeah. that's their job. You know, that's how they do yeah. it. And, and they're going to go it, it play. It is a job. Yeah. And they're going to go play drums in four cities and then come back and do a grocery run on Saturday and actually be yeah. able to afford to eat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the, the greatest job on earth. Oh, yeah. But it's but a grind. I mean, you got to, you know, these if you're these guys, yeah. it is a job. Yeah. All right. they're, yeah, they're punching in and they're punching out. And yeah. sometimes punching in, they're like, oh, my God, did you hear this guy that just came in? Get him on another track. Let's right. let's <laughs> this guy's fantastic. Right. Which is where you get. And this sometimes it's like you said, stories. thank you yeah. very much for stopping by. Here's your press. Have right. a good day. Bye bye. <laughs> right, right, right. Sometimes you get the skyrocketers. Sometimes you got Lenny, who's kind of flat all the time. Yeah. Um, and you never know which one is going to be the hit. So yeah. you got to. Right. Oh yeah, keep in touch. Hey, right. it's me. I'm. Yep. Remember us. We're your buddies. So anyway, all of that being said, um, all of that tangent, the uh, Booker T and the MGs at this point exists as the Stacks in-house backup band. Um, they get everything. Yeah, they don't set have up. a name. Right. They get everything set up to record uh, on a Sunday. They're waiting for this lead singer to show up. The lead singer never shows up. Steve Cropper never identified who it was by name. Um, but Paul in this... Anka. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly who it was. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It's Frankie Avalon. <laughs> yeah. This little guy you might know by the name of Che Guevara. <laughs> Mel Torme. Yeah. Yeah. This little guy, some of you might know out there in Radioland as Joseph Stalin. <laughs> Mr. Wynn says. Sarait, Sarait. He's going to finally turn Sarait, Sarait into a uh, into a hit. Yeah. It's a little guy <laughs> out there in Radioland, you might know. <laughs> As Terry Savalas. <laughs> Who loves you? Who loves you, baby? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he he eventually did make a couple records. That's true. Yeah. In the, in the 70s. Right. Uh, <laughs> God, we could do this forever. Oh, that would be so much fun. <laughs> Who was the mystery singer that... Uh, no. Um, it was a little guy! <laughs> Sorry, no, I'm stopping. I'm stopping. Otherwise, I'm going to be doing this all night. Um... So they got the recording equipment set up, and um, <laughs> it's a little guy you might know as Neil Armstrong. 
he had yes, not, if he had Armstrong. missed, yes. Fortunately, his music career went to shit, and he went to space instead. Um, no, so they had the recording. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, they had the recording equipment set up. The the um, uh, lead singer never shows up. Um, Booker T. Jones uh, kind of looks over and Cropper says, uh, "We've got everything set up," and he's talking. Cropper is saying, "You know, it's like the middle of the day at this point. They were waiting for the guy since like 9 a.m." He said. Um, you know, why don't we jam the way that we usually jam before lead singers show up? Uh, we'll just we'll just lay down some stuff. And we'll we'll see what it sounds like. Um, but why don't we just we'll, we'll just record it, you know? And then we'll 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 throw the tape in the uh, the back of the recording studio, and maybe we can put it behind somebody else at some point. Um, and so Cropper and and the rest of the group kind of agreed, and they said, "All right, yeah, let's let's record it." So they record three or four jams. And these are kind of a wavery, in and out, uh, rough, kind of loose jams. Uh, they, they got nice, they kind of all kind of mutually agreed on, you know, endings at a certain point once they kind of got bored with the, you know, the main theme and, and riffing. Um, and they put it to, you know, so now it's on wax. It's, it's recorded as a, as a, a rough record. Um, they had listened to it, or no, um, more accurately, um, I think it's uh, uh, Stewart, uh, Jim Stewart. Um, he apparently uh, came up to the booth at some point near the end of the jam session. They fin the the Booker T and the MGs. Uh, they they finish up, and they're just kind of sitting around talking about how much fun that was. And Stewart calls him down from the uh, the booth and says, "You guys need to come up here and you need to listen to this. Uh, this is really hot. Uh, we might want to consider releasing this." Uh, so the band goes up there and has a listen. And they all kind of start looking at each other, going, "Oh, this is, this we might have a thing here." Um, <clears throat> so then Cropper and this, I, I, it's so funny because it's it's that humility that you only find in southern musicians. Um, apparently he goes to one of his buddies who's a DJ and the phrase the, the, the phrase he uses is he goes I handed it to the guy and I said well I think you might like this you know it's got a dance beat <laughs> it's like downplaying it the whole time it's like it's not like this is the best shit ever it's like well I don't know we, we thought it was kind of good you know <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> well, it's got a dance beat yeah right um, so he, uh, his, his DJ buddy puts it on the air and then plays it four consecutive times in a row. Um, yeah. and plays it over and over and over again. And, and each time Cropper talks about, it, he's, he's getting increasingly anxious. Um, <laughs> and at the end, um, the DJ hands it back and says, this is hot. This is amazing. I can't, I, you know, I really appreciate it. Um, he says, you might want to go uh, get this uh, take uh, produced now. And Cropper's like, why? And the guy says, yep. well, uh, look at the phone. <laughs> the phone was lighting yeah. up. So, uh, yeah, everyone said, what is that? What, what is the that? hell is that? Yeah. He says, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What is that? I want some of that. Yeah, exactly. So the DJ basically created demand before there was even a record. Um, the group gets together. Uh, you know, within the you know following days or week or whatever, something like that. Um, they start talking about the tracks. the The first, the first three or four tracks 
that are on the A side of the album Green Onions. They are uh, Green Onions, Behave Yourself, and Mo Onions, which is just uh. basically them saying, hey, Green Onions was so good, let's riff on it again. And let's just do it with, yeah. you know, a slightly different... Let's let's give it a little bit more of a um, uh, a loose tinny sound, and let's let's really wail on it. Um, you, you don't you don't hear a lot more you don't hear a lot of sequel tracks these days, right? No, you don't. I'll tell you what though, those were a big staple <laughs> of this not... era, though. That was, I mean, that's a big thing back in this era. Is yeah. you know, they would do somebody would do an awesome song, just something freaking fantastic, and then people would go do that again but do you know re recapture the, the the heat of it you know and you'd have folks like uh otis redding and, and um sam and dave and, and booker t and these guys would go well all right let's just do the same song again but uh we'll just do it a little bit different you know sells yeah, yeah. sells the same but um the rest of the the rest of the tracks on the album green onions were just various covers of uh, some of the songs that they had done with their friends there in stacks um, basically it was all stuff where they owned the intellectual property or they knew the artists um, the song Green Onions the name comes from apparently Steinberg uh, Louis Steinberg he says let's call it Onions Cropper says why do you want to call the track Onions Steinberg says because I listened to it I can't believe we recorded it that stunk <laughs> <laughs> And Cropper says, all right, all right. And again, this is all, you know, this is all Memphis, right? So everybody's got a Southern accent. Cropper says, well, why not green onions? Because, you know, if onions, regular onions will give people indigestion. But, uh, you know, green onions, uh, nobody complains about that. You do some nice fried green onions. Uh, it's nice and tasty. Doesn't, doesn't make people cry. So why don't we call it green onions? And apparently that was the sell. <laughs> Like the rest of the group, I can just I have this image of these, you know, these two black dudes, two white dudes sitting around going, Oh, yeah, it's a call it green onion. Sure, it's like yeah, standing in the alley having a smoke after the session. Right. Oh, right. What about, what about this? Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, alright. That sounds good. Yeah. Exactly. Um That story reminds me it must be I wonder if that's the uh the song the the the, st the story that they were uh, parodying in uh, Walk Hard, the extremely rude in parts uh, Judd Apatow movie, which is one of my favorite movies, Walk Hard with uh, John C. Riley. Um, after they re after he records Walk Hard, it, it cuts to a DJ, um, and now the the single that's burning up the charts recorded just 35 minutes ago walk hard <laughs> yeah yeah it feels like it's one of those where everybody kind of looked at each other and said uh, maybe a better name than that <laughs> yeah so um i'm not sure what the timeline is after that but basically you know uh wax becomes vinyl um they get a few hundred printed the few hundred sell like hotcakes. They do a few more. Uh, Stack suddenly finds itself making thousands and then millions of uh, Booker T and the MGs. And they choose the band name at that point. And um, this is where I appreciate you helping me uh, uh, get corrected on this. Um, 
they would in interviews tell people that MGs was the uh, the Memphis group um, and and uh, apparently people would ask you know is it named after the MG like the Spitfire and they was like no no it's the Memphis group uh, but Dan actually corrected me and said um, that uh, uh, Jones and Steinberg, uh, Louis Steinberg, uh, were apparently in another band that was called the Triumphs, named after the, the Triumph motorcycle, um, and that uh, they decided that uh, they were going to go with um, uh, MGs because they liked the car. But then, I guess when they the, when they did the press junkets, they probably went with memphis group just to avoid getting in trouble with the car manufacturer and that's where you yeah, know I'll, yeah. I'll i'll verify i'll jump to you on that one yeah yeah they're worried about copy or trademark i guess not copyright trademark but yeah uh one of the guys was a guitar player and uh he was a producer slash engineer at stacks named uh, right. chips moment um uh had an mg and uh the the uh the car and previously, Moman and uh, Booker and Steinberg had a band called the Triumph that was named after his Triumph. Right. So yeah, it was just the same idea. Like, oh yeah, let's do that again. Yeah, yeah. Because it was just like a, a fill in the blank. Yeah. And so like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and apparently later on in life, Duck Dunn used to go on interviews, and if somebody asked him what uh, MGs meant, apparently he'd uh, lean into the microphone and say musical geniuses <laughs> um, I like your Don imitation thank you musical geniuses yeah yeah I get this really low gravelly voice um, yeah yeah all right I know from the uh, from the four words that he said in the blues brothers <laughs> the blues brothers know. right right well, why don't we do it in the key vein? Um. <laughs> so uh, okay um, yeah Booker uh, so so Green Onions shoots to the top of the charts. It's um, uh, over a million copies. It really is printed. like an instant hit. Yeah, like, like no one slept on it. It's wildfire. It moves so fast. It's through the course of the summer into the fall of 1963, uh, because 62 is when they recorded, and then I, I think it's like a year occurs, and then 63. It's the summer of 63 that Green Onions shoots to the top of the charts. Um, it becomes a number one on the U.S. Billboard R&B chart. It it sits there for several weeks, uh, number three on the pop chart. Uh, it sells over a million copies uh, within the course of a year or two. It receives a certified gold disc. Um, and then the thing that was interesting about it is because of its ridiculous popularity, it becomes this song that essentially is mentally watermarked in everyone's collective consciousness as this as a sound of the 60s not the sound of the 60s but certainly a sound when you think of 60s soul yeah. and 60s blues you know if you were to ask anybody who you know had a uh, a, a, a man off the street you know with with rough music knowledge you know what do you think of when you think of the 60s you know they, they probably say well you know there's the beatles and then what's that song the green onion song do 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 you know it's, yeah, it's in yeah. the back of it's everybody's one of those, head it's specifically yeah like 62 and yeah. you know in in movies like uh 
when they really want to nail an exact time where it's like it's not the 60s the 60s right there's nothing psychedelic there's no vietnam yet right but it's not the button-down 50s and you know movies like dirty dancing right uh they use a lot of um uh, phil Spector music yeah or you know do you love me all these like it was August of 1962, like they hammer it into your head. Yeah. August of 1960 or whatever month yeah. it was. The one uh, I and know it from is the Sandlot. That's the one where the Sandlot. I was just gonna say it's the Sandlot. Boom, Sandlot. There it yep. is. Green yep. onions. Yeah. When all the kids, because they did, yeah, they did the kids walking in slow mo, coming onto the field, and yeah, it was like that was the that was the moment. That 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 scene, the way they filmed it, the the fact that they did it in slow mo, uh, and then they got the music overlaid over the kids walking on, and these are all nine and ten year olds, and they're looking like a bunch of you know badasses, and I'm like, that song is amazing, and this movie is now amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's only one of the little details that uh, that bumps it up. That's right. great. I I so I. You know, the rest of the audience may or may not know. So I I was super duper big into Blues Brothers back in the day. And um, the, the one little anecdote that I thought was funny was that um, they use um, Time is Tight in the first Blues Brothers movie in 1980. But then they don't use Green Onions in a Blues Brothers movie until Blues Brothers 2000 in 1998. And I just, I, I found that kind of interesting because it's like, that's that's the song and that's that's right, proper right. and done song and they're in yeah. the band and that song was yeah. not used in that movie <laughs> yeah but yeah yeah anyway um so let me see here so uh that's through 63 64 um green onions is really that rockets them to to uh success um it also enables them to do a lot of um switching and shifting out and and moving from one band group to another um around that period of time um cropper plays uh guitar with the marquees when they do last night whoa last night yeah and coincidentally going back to the first episode of this very podcast yeah they used it as the theme song to the tv show bottom mm. and it's them dancing in silhouette as uh as last night is played i forgot about that yes thank well, you for mentioning well, that uh, richie and eddie are dancing their little tuchuses <laughs> Whoa, last and night. beating each other up obviously right cartoon violence you have to have cartoon <laughs> violence if it's aid edmondson and right and rick mail right <laughs> ah, missed both my legs um <laughs> all right so um you got them playing with the uh, cropper goes off place with the marquees um there is a period of time through the course of I think it's 64 through 66. It's either 64 through 66 or through 67 where Booker T. Jones goes to college. He goes off yeah. to Indiana University. 
and he goes, hey. and uh, yeah, I'm an 11. I know someone who went there. Hell too old, I you. Um, and he uh, he graduates with a music degree. Um, and uh, actually, the thing that's really funny is that they had a variety of backup organists and uh, pianists that came in to because um, they they needed somebody in the Stacks house band while Booker T was off, you know, during the fall and the spring semester doing his degree. Um, so just so happened, this is yeah, where from, this joke. I mean, it's, now it's can not, be done. It's not an in, it's not an unthinkable commute no. from Memphis to Bloomington, but it is. It's yeah. a, it's a haul. Right, right, right. And this is where I can finally use this joke: is that the uh, one of the organists that they brought in to uh, for the Stacks House Band was a little-known guy named mm. Isaac Hayes. Yay! Yay! Exactly. And so uh, Isaac Hayes' career kind of starts uh, in that Stax recording studio in Memphis. And, um, you know, then he kind of goes off and, and he's doing his thing. Um, so, yeah, Isaac Hayes is in there. Um, there were two other artists that stepped in. As, and he uh, was there for a, for a little while. He was. He did a lot of, of piano work and songwriting there. Yeah, because he was essentially, he was one of, I think it was two or three um, rotating uh, piano players, uh, organ players that they had in that house band. And so... Which is really hard because you get dizzy and <laughs> sometimes right. you fall off the stool or... Well, you know, that was the thing that they tried strings. back then in the 60s was, you know, they had the, the piano and the organ on a giant... Um, uh, it was like those NASA pendulums. And so you had to crawl across the pendulum from one side to the other to play either instrument. And by the end, you're just puking all over the place. You know, they, I'm glad, <laughs> they actually ended that practice in 1972 and they realized that it didn't contribute to the music in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> yeah. If Sorry. anything, it made it worse. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And everything would be kind of a... a, a, a disgusting hue of ground green uh brown green by the end i, I like ground green i'm gonna stick with that um, yeah ground green yeah brown green onions yes 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 yeah. <laughs> i had to stutter my way through that combination right 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 yeah <laughs> booker t's latest album brown green onions <laughs> sorry that's a terrible joke I, I apologize immediately for that. Um, <laughs> Remix. All right. 65 through 69. Um, they had um, they had continued success. Uh, Booker T and the MGs continues to release stuff uh, just consistently. They're either doing singles or they're doing albums. They didn't really have chart toppers through this period of time. Um this is that era where you've got Booker T. Jones home during the summer, Isaac Hayes and the other uh, keyboard players uh, that I couldn't remember, um, you know, taking up the fall and the spring. Um, yeah. Cropper noted that um, Booker T. and the MG's recordings were things that occurred between the work that they did for Stacks, And this comes back to that same thing I mentioned about Cropper before, that recording a singer came first because that's what made the recording studio money. And that right. sitting down to do a Booker T and the MGs jam came second, and it was a thing that they would do while they were there, and while they yeah. were either waiting for the singer to arrive 
or once the singer had left because and this is this, go oh, ahead I'm sorry oh the the other half of the sentence was that because despite the fact that they had had that wildfire success it was lightning in a bottle and they still needed to put food on their plates so they even yeah. you know everybody knew them they could sign autographs wherever they went but you know you, you you still had to do the grocery run you know a month out the road so yeah and this is where they're doing you know in the midnight hour and sitting on the dock of the bay and right. hold on i'm coming and yep. soul man and all these amazing amazing yeah. singles right this is that era where now you've got all of these amazing um soul singers of the 60s and early 70s rotating in and out of that Stax recording studio uh, and, and laying down vocals with this group, which is already a uh, Billboard number one group and just happens to also be the in-house group. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And yeah, yeah it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, every oldie every classic soul song from the 60s that you love yeah. was either Booker T and the MGs or some variation yeah or the Funk Brothers up in Detroit right yep yep at, yeah or the folks down at um Muscle Shoals yeah because you had like, you had three every record maybe, you love was at one of those was one of those three groups <laughs> right right and you had those big three you had detroit you had memphis you had muscle shoals and then kind of uh bringing up the rear you had um the 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 tail end of kind of the jazz soul scene uh and bop uh in new york but by this point soul yeah, had developed yeah. its own signature sound which had separated yeah. itself from New York jazz, despite the fact that you had the New York jazz folks trying to figure out how do we make jazz sound more like soul? And so you end up with bop, which is what, you know, Miles Davis got into for a while. But by that point, the, the Memphis soul guys and the Detroit soul guys were off in their own hemisphere. They, they oh, at that yeah, point yeah. had entirely separated from sounding. Yeah. yeah by know, that time, yeah. Bebop had had passed, and it was hard bop. You were getting right. more Latin stuff coming up, more African influences, yeah. more. Yeah. Uh, it was it was getting more intense. Right. It wasn't as easygoing, right. and more experimental as well. Right. So you while you've getting, got you know, the sound of jazz yet to come and all that. Yeah. So while you've got Mingus and while you got uh, Miles Davis out there going oh, how man. how can we how can we wrap in more unique more wild more esoteric sounds that will make jazz stand as a signature thing jazz becomes this uh, its own kind of almost like exclusive type of thing where jazz artists are allowed to travel the world and stuff like that meanwhile the guys in memphis are going you know let's just sing a song about how that girl over there broke my heart Okay. Yeah. Do, 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 do. <laughs> that girl, she broke my heart. Yeah. You know, and then they're into it, right? And and right, it's right, a soul right. song. Um, and it's it's just a different world and a different mentality, and um, it it resulted in this very cool raw sound. Um, yeah. 
which uh, anyway um so yeah i mean it's definitely the like the best of both sides of that right it's so professional and it feels spotless yeah even if you go back and you look at the notation like oh there was a thing here and a thing here huh that's weird but in the moment it's just yeah that's exactly what should happen (laughs) yeah yeah yes correct a plus yeah and and it's it's because that's a group of four guys uh or or or, you know men and women uh standing around in those recording studios bobbing their head at each other and feeling the same song collectively at the same time um and then you know later you know maybe they'll write it down maybe they'll commit it to you know sheet music but uh, that is the music that, that, that they're feeling that song. They're all feeling that song when the recording mic is turned on. Um, yeah. All right. 67. They hit the top 40 again with Hip Hugger. Um, and then the cool thing is that June of 67, uh, they actually went on tour uh, as part of the Stax Volt Reviews. So this is Volt Records, which was uh, also out of – I didn't look up Volt, um, but I, I – Southern Soul of some sort, um, but it's Volt Records and Stax Records. They they pair up. Um, they actually played during this tour with Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Who, and Jefferson Airplane. Yeah. And yeah, then it's my, yeah. Go on. Go it's on. one of those uh, yeah those like festivals, those legendary. I mean, we have festivals, but. Right. Like, yo, those are some festivals. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is the type of All thing All killer, where... no filler. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, those are the type of uh, festivals where it's like, you hear people talking about, yeah, I was there on that Saturday and the following bands played. And they list off million dollar uh, sellers that are like, you know, have, have billions of squillions of hits on iTunes and you go, you listen to all of those in a, uh, amphitheater in the middle of podunk nowhere, you know, in yeah. the, in the corner of the seventies. And they're like, yeah, it was no big deal. You know? Um, yeah, and I mean that, that the, uh, the one that you're talking about specifically is the Monterey pop festival, which is right. sort of the, It's like the a lot of things are going on all over the place, and then at Monterey, they all came together and condensed, and then an atom bomb went off from there, right. and everyone leveled up afterwards. Yeah. yeah, that's where Jimi Hendrix exploded out of the Monterey Pop Festival. Mm-hmm. Yep, he was known in England. Right. But in the States, they were like, who's this guy? And then they saw him, and they're like, whoa, who's that guy? Yep. Yeah, and, and it, he blew up. And he that's where he let he lit the guitar on fire. And yeah. Pete Townsend of The Who was pissed because he was going to do that. And <laughs> Hendrix, on their tour, Hendrix was opening for The Who, and Townsend had started doing that, and Jimmy took it from him, and Pete was pissed off. <laughs> that's funny. That's awesome. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. You stole my game. Yeah, there's you lots of little stupid things like that. <laughs> Everyone was was taking each other's ideas and right. doing something to to annoy the other guy. Yeah. So you got you got Monterey, uh, you got the Monterey Festival on the one hand, 
or on, on the one end of that era and then you have kind of the the culmination of this era when everybody's at Woodstock um, and the thing yeah. that I think is hilarious is that the footnote that I wrote down about Woodstock is that Booker T and the MGs chose not to play at Woodstock because Al Jackson Jr. on who was the drummer at the time he he didn't want to ride in the helicopter he said he said he was scared of uh, <laughs> riding in the helicopter <laughs> so. I mean I can't blame him yeah and yeah. they're probably better off uh, you know all the everything I've ever heard from anyone who performed at Woodstock unless it was you know some boring folk singer Right. All the rock people and the soul people were pretty miserable. Yeah. Well, it was it was not a good experience for the performers because I mean, if nothing else, no one got paid. <laughs> right. Well, it stands out like, as this oh, moment of like cultural iconography because you know it was the highest oh, point for the hippie movement. But it's then the you, thing. Right. But then when you actually listen to some of the recordings from Woodstock. It's like, damn, Jimmy, you, uh, oof, what happened, man? And what happened is that they all got fucking rained out. So, yeah. They got rained out. Or, and, or it's like, all right, your set is 5 a.m. Right. Yeah. Have, have a good time. Oh, okay. And, yeah. oh, sorry, you're not getting paid. Oh, right. cool. Great. Okay. Why am I here? I right. hate all of you. <laughs> yeah. And then on top of all of that, we sprinkle the narrative of endless drugs at Woodstock, you know? Yeah. Basically anything you well, wanted. Well, the uh, on who's next? Uh, uh, Bob O'Reilly, teenage wasteland. Right, that was right. that was Townsend complaining about Woodstock. He hated Woodstock. <laughs> he hated the hippies. He hated the whole thing. He thought it was the biggest waste of time. And at Woodstock, you can hear the recording. Um, Abby Hoffman gets up on the stage and he's yelling yeah. into the mic. Hey man, this is bullshit. We gotta talk about this while someone is in jail. And, and you hear Pete Townsend, you hear him just the microphone barely picks him up. Get the fuck off my stage! And he hits them with the guitar and knocks them down. I think this is a pile of shit. While John Sinclair rocks in prison. <laughs> He like That's beats beautiful. up Abby Hoffman with his guitar, and that rules. That is beautiful. Because <laughs> that guy sucks. <laughs> that is a thing I did not know. Holy shit. <laughs> I love that. That's gorgeous. I love Pete Townsend. Oh, my God. Oh, that's funny as all get out. Fog. <laughs> <laughs> um, <sighs> all right, so. So anyway, yeah, they skip Woodstock. So yeah. anyway tail end of 60s uh, 1968 you got three more hits um this is where the sound of booker t and the mg starts to change and um part of that was because they they ended up with a revised lineup through uh 65 and then 67 uh booker t jones comes back he's graduated from college they, so at a certain point 63 64 65 during the the musical chairs era of, of booker t and the mgs uh, Louis Steinberg, who is part of the original lineup, he cycles out. He's replaced by Duck Dunn. Um, uh, Donald Duck Dunn, uh, who was Steve Cropper's high school buddy. They had been part of that uh, soul band going way back to high school together. 
he then basically becomes a a solid part of Booker T and the MGs from here on in, 60s onwards. Um, from th- from here on in, when you talk about Booker T and the MGs, you're you're talking about Cropper and Dunn, uh, and then a for the most part Jones Cropper and Dunn. Um, for a long time, it's Jones, Cropper, Dunn, and Al Jackson Jr. Al Jackson Jr. on drums. Uh, they're from the beginning. Um, and uh, they do Soul Limbo in 68. Uh, these are these are some more chart toppers. Soul Limbo in 1968. Hang em High in 1968. And Time is Tight in 1969, which was number six on the Billboard charts that year. Mm-hmm. All right. So... And I'm, I'm moving fast now, so I do apologize. Um, Let me know now, when you hit 71. I'm, I'm almost there, dude. I'm so almost close. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 1970. Um, through the course of the 60s and going into the early 70s, Dunn and Jones liked the Beatles, and this admiration was mutual since the Beatles had been influenced by Stax Records. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you can't have Beatles rock and roll without the sound of soul being part of the way that they play. It's it's baked yeah. into the, the sound of the Beatles music. Um, yeah, yeah. Booker T I mean, and the their MGs. first couple records were just covers of American rock and soul songs. Right, they right. Were, they ate it up. Yep. And licked the and licked the spoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were as eager as possible to try and get that American feel, and part of that is the yeah, yeah. the stack soul scene. Um, so, at, at some point, late '60s, um, cross pollination begins to occur uh, between um, Duck Dunn and Booker T. Jones, where they're doing some sort of communication with uh, uh, Paul McCartney. Uh, basically say hey uh gosh we really love the beatles uh is there you would you mind if we covered you guys um beatles get wind of this and they're like oh my god absolutely please 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 um and and booker t and the <laughs> like, were no not please 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 me we'll do a different one yeah right but I'm fine. <laughs> good good that was good that was good <laughs> yeah and um so they went off and they recorded the album uh in eight days a week no i'm sorry i'll stop i'm not gonna do that um <laughs> um, they 19... recorded it in their yellow submarine that they it's had. It's true. It's true. And that after a, a hard day's fact. night, they ended up with the album. <laughs> Sorry. Um. So, uh, hey, Aaron. The... Yeah. What? You 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 know what we need to make this podcast better right now? What do we need? Help. Do you need somebody? <laughs> Pretty sure it's not just anybody. Um, all right. So, uh, 1970, they record Macklemore Avenue, which is their instrumental cover of some of their favorite Beatles songs, including a lot of the songs off of Abbey Road. Um, my favorite thing about the Macklemore album, uh, Macklemore Avenue album cover, is that it's the four of them crossing the road exactly like the Beatles did in Abbey Road, except the difference is they're crossing it in Memphis, Tennessee. So it, you know, whereas, you know, 
the album cover yeah. of Abbey Road has all of the signature little bits and pieces to it the the red post office box the beat the the you know the the beetle car etc all these little hints as to you know this is the uk this is the beatles um booker t and the mgs the image is signaturely american and it's a beautiful album yeah. cover and i've had it as computer wallpaper for many years and i i always look at it and it's got the greyhound bus in the background and it's got like these you know beat up ran down cars parked on the side of the street and it's 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 just beautiful because it's this perfect complement to um, the Beatles album in sound and in imagery on on the album cover. Uh, but it's it's Booker T and the MG saying, "But this is us doing our version of it," and it's yeah. so signature both in image and in sound. And I, I love it to this day. It I'm really a Beatles is. Fan, but I love their their cover of it. It really is a a, uh, a love letter to yeah. to Abbey Road. It's it's a really cool, it's really cool the way that they did it. Yeah, and it's it's just so charming. I, I love that album. I that's one of those few albums that I I have it on. I had it on CD. I had to own it on vinyl. I ended up finding it at a rummage sale at some point. Uh, I got it on iTunes. I, I can't live without it. That and the greatest hits. Just. Uh, that's that's uh, part of the soundtrack to my life. Hey everybody, this is Aaron. This is the end of part one of the Booker T and the MGs episode. Uh, tune in next week for part two. And once again, apologies for doing this, but otherwise, I think we we're going to end up delivering a three-hour podcast, and uh, I'm not going to put anybody through that. <laughs>